From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and for each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others in the workplace. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I can bring on cool people who can tell you about things that I know less about. And with me today, we have two cool people. We have Professor Clarissa Peterson, who's a professor of political science at DePaul University. And we also have Professor Emmett Riley III, who is a professor of political science at DePaul University, as well as director of Africana Studies. Thank you both for joining me. Professor Peterson, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Professor Riley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here too. Now, as I said, we like to start the story with a case. We had a case from a previous episode called White Talk at Work, and that involved someone pushing back on anti-racist measures. Here's Kate reading that case from the previous episode. This is the case we used in our episode White Talk with Allison Bailey. Bethany calls together several employees and wants to have a conversation about changes she'd like to see in their organization. She says, I would like us all to take a good hard look at any ways in which our company makes life more difficult for or discriminates against black employees. She starts to introduce concepts like systemic racism and privilege. In the back of the room, there's a guy named Chad. He raises his hand. And when called on, he says, look, don't you think people of color have privileges too? In fact, in some cases, they're more likely to get the job or a promotion because of our interest in diversifying a team. And at some point, shouldn't we just acknowledge that no system is perfect and be comfortable with the fact that we've made significant advances? And while, yeah, there are still problems, I think we're actually doing pretty good. So Professor Peterson and Professor Riley, at the the end of that case, Chad was pushing back, saying things like, haven't we made great strides? Haven't we done sort of good enough um, in, in trying to make life better for Black people in America? Isn't it time to acknowledge that good is good enough? Now, we identified that in the previous episode as a case of epistemic pushback. But as a fan of some of the work that you all do, I know you do a lot of work on this thing called racial resentment. And it it dawned on me that there could be something like that going on in a case like this. A little background on racial resentment. Racial resentment is a uh, model of white racial prejudice. Uh, that measures uh, white attitudes about race, right, particularly Black people, where they essentially make the case that after the civil rights movement, Blacks had gained formal equality as as it relates to the civil rights movement with the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act. And so by the 1970s and 80s, African Americans in America were still in the streets protesting, demanding social justice, changes to civil rights policy and employment opportunities. Uh, In the minds of many white people, we had already given you the Civil Rights Act, we've given you the Voting Rights Act, and those pieces of legislation in and of itself, in the minds of most whites, eradicated this question of race right. And so one of the unfinished works of the Civil Rights Movement was really, really dealing with the issue of economic justice and systemic racism that infiltrated our politics uh, and so forth. And so by the 1980s, you still got black people marching in the streets and white people are like, what's the issue now? This new racism known as symbolic racism or racial resentment replaced old fashioned racism and that it showed up in a very subtle way. 
it masks itself both in partisanship and ideology, but most importantly, it masks itself in ideas about black people feeling lazy, black people not working hard enough, uh, black people not taking advantages of the opportunities presented to themselves. And so this whole idea of racial resentment as a, as, as a social construct uh, is essentially rooted in anti-Blackness, to be frank, right? This notion of how people feel about Blackness and its place in society. Fast forward to the Obama years, uh, racial resentment re-emerged into the America's political discourse. It is now spilled over into support for Trump, attitudes about Black Lives Matter. And as uh, Michael Tesler argues in uh, Most Racial or Post-Racial, that since the recording of racial resentment measures, he argues that Blacks and whites have become, that Americans have become more racially divided on a host of political issues that are not even remotely related to race. And so if you have these anti-Black attitudes that are now shaping the way Americans uh, identify in terms of their partisanship, their ideology, their approval of candidates, their support for candidates, we now see it operating as a uh, major uh, predictor of a lot of our political attitudes that we see happening now. And so uh, that's essentially what racial resentment is. And so if we're talking about racial resentment in the workplace, I think that we can talk about the ways in which these implicit attitudes shapes how we engage, how we behave, uh, who we hire, how do we interview them, uh, and also the environment. And I also think too, we can't talk about racial resentment without talking about how racial resentment is also related to perceived black progress. So as Blacks begin to progress, you also see more racial resentment. I just wanted to add to that. And in the case that you um, talked about a little while ago, uh, what we see here, I think, is this attitude that we've done everything we can for Black people. Let's broaden it to other people as well. Um, and we see that, I think, in lots of workplaces, including where we work at, where people see it as a zero-sum game. You know, we, we've been spending all this time talking about Black people, but let's talk about all these other groups, right? Let's forget that Black people have this unique history and that we gave them all this stuff. So they should be happy with that. How about we talk about how um, all the other groups are dealing with these biases as well? So it's never legitimate to just talk about Black people. The most disheartening thing about this is that this is often people who consider themselves allies and working with people who are fighting racism, such as Emmett and I. And so here you have people who are fighting racism, who have this legitimacy, who other whites look at, and they may or may not be white, by the way, who other people look at as allies and champions of the cause. And you have them pushing back saying, wait a minute, we got to look at other groups too. And it's a way of, once again, pushing Black people to the side. And as I like to say, and um, Emma says as well, another way of looking at, well, you guys, all lives matter here. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, in particular, I'm interested in this idea of white people who think they are great allies, but they're doing things that are harmful or run counter to the aims of uh, an anti-racist movement. Could you say more about that? Or like what, what kinds of things happen what are some common ways in which people might be thinking they're a good ally when in fact they're the opposite? 
Well, first, I, I definitely want to broaden that to not just whites, but people, let's just say people who are not black. Sure. Because many times this, dare I say, victimization comes not just from whites. Yes, probably mostly from whites, but other groups as well. In particular, when they feel like their group hasn't been given as many chances as black people have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it comes up in the way in which I said, but it also comes up when, you know, when, when someone who is black, um, as someone said to me uh, before, gives you a gift of, hey, when you do X, it's actually problematic for the black community. Or you have done this in the past and it has been um, harmful to black, for the black community or to the black community. And your response is to clam up and then to prove how you really have actually been helping black people. That's a disconnect. That's um, a, I've done everything I can. I, I refuse to believe that you won't take the goodness that I've been giving you, right? And, but you're an ally. And what I've said to you now is not as legitimate. And that happens all the time, all the time. It's, well, instead of, huh, I did do that. Let me think about how that impacted Black people. And why is she saying that that's been a problem? It becomes a defense mechanism. Because in your mind, in terms of your resentfulness, you've done everything you possibly can to help Black people. Why can't she just acknowledge it and move on? The I've done enough kind of attitudes that some people like, I've, I've done all these good things. How, how could you not take the goodness that I'm giving you now? There's this concept called moral banking that they've noticed in people that now this is detached from from race. But the idea is people are more likely to behave badly if they've just done a bunch of good stuff. So they, they, the idea is like, I've just done a bunch of good stuff and that they're, they're more likely to cheat. They'll be more likely to steal a dollar from the tip jar. Right. Or or if they're caught doing something bad, they're more likely to get really defensive about the bad. Like because they're feeling so good. They're like I just did all this good stuff. I just worked at a soup kitchen all day. And then somebody, you know, gets on their case about not calling their mom on her birthday or something. It's like, gosh, enough's enough. Like, I'm not a perfect person, right? It sounds like this this kind of pushback that happens, this kind of being a bad ally, it's almost like this is an example of that. It's just, it's just applied to race. Like, I've done all these wonderful things, and now you're mad at me about this. Give me a break, right? Is that that kind of thing that seems to be happening? Absolutely. In fact, I can even tell you that I've had, as you know, I'm very outspoken about this kind of thing. And after I sent an email to everyone on the campus saying, hey, uh, here's how you can dismantle racism, systemic racism. And then I had a conversation with an individual about some of the things that they had done that actually ran counter to unraveling the systemic racism. And the person came back with, no, how could you say that about me? I know I'm a good ally because this particular group told me I'm a good ally. And so I know I am. So I don't care what you say, I'm doing good for the black community. And you know, where do you go from there? How do you move on? That's when you, you almost wanna, as we would say, put the person on blast and make sure everybody knows, don't listen to what this person is saying because you guys think that this person is an ally, but in reality, they're so busy patting themselves on the back for what they did and not acknowledging the ways in which they've continued the practice that they become more scary and more dangerous, right? They're, they're the most dangerous. So what um, those of us who fight racism or anti-blackness, those of us who fight it, 
we are most concerned with the people who are somewhat on our side. We're okay with those who say, you know what, Clarissa, I don't understand it. I need some help, right? Or I don't know where to go, whatever. I think I'm doing some things wrong, but we are most damaged by those who do this kind of work. Racial resentment is so dangerous because people think that they're not racist. They don't realize that they're racist. They don't realize when they said, well, you know, Clarissa Peterson had the same chances I had. I don't know why she didn't do X, Y, and Z. She had the same chances. People are racially resentful. They resent the fact that I have to do something different. And, it, and I wouldn't say they resent it. They don't acknowledge. They refuse to understand and believe that as Black faculty, as Black people, we always have to do something different. And I'm talking about being a faculty member, but this comes up in other jobs as well. And also thinking about um, sort of the ways in which people who think that their allies engage in oppressive behavior, right? And so explaining this to a white audience made a, a comparable analogy may be the feminist movement, right? There are a lot of Black women who do race politics who don't rock with the white feminist movement because they never see themselves projected in that. And so one way thinking about it is um, you go to a protest, right? And you see white people who are protesting and participating in a march, but also not realizing that there's a privilege for you to use certain language towards police officers and not be killed. That's one of the oppressive behaviors we see from allies, but also understanding that allies have got to realize that they don't know everything, that there are still blind spots as an ally. And the moment you acknowledge those blind spots is where you're really engaging in the meaningful work. And it's not necessarily about, um, I've read a book or I've read two studies and I'm now ready to dismantle systemic inequality. You've got to realize the ways in which your very existence as a white person is implicit to a system that reinforces anti-blackness. And then how do you take that privilege on a daily basis to check and say, am I reinforcing these notions about blacks being lazy, these notions about blacks not taking advantage of opportunities, all of these stereotypical notions that are rooted in anti-blackness and also how do white people too begin to raise their children where they're not exposed to these anti-black sentiments. Now, as a white person, I know I often feel anxiety about whether I'm being a good ally or not. Could you maybe share some other examples of bad allyship you've encountered at work? In terms of other examples of bad allyship, so there is, uh, I mean, there are most, I mean, there's so many examples. We probably be on 24 hours talking about the different examples, but one that comes to mind uh, is the ally who is the silent ally, the one who will send you a private email saying, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you, but when it comes time to speak up in a room, won't say anything. It's the ally who sits idly by and will, who, who, treat you, who will treat you nice, who will have a decent conversation with you, who will perhaps is perhaps a decent person, but is unwilling to speak up for you if you don't speak up. And that's another disheartening element of how do you, as a Black person, 
position these people in your life when you know they're not going to come to your rescue if it involves them speaking up on your behalf but they're also a decent person who treats you well they're not as oppressive as the person who you know is not your ally and i'm from the south where the racial lines are clear so coming into the midwest where white people are very very friendly but also are very cutthroat behind your back writ large you know in terms of not being clear versus being in the south it's absolutely clear where the white and black line is. If they don't like you, they're not going to deal with you. And you're going to know that. But here it becomes a more, almost a more mask form uh, uh, of the way in which allies engage the, the lack of action, you know, when it comes to really speaking up, when it comes time to lose something. Because ultimately, if you're a true ally, you're willing to risk pissing off your friends for doing something that's problematic. Another example is that ally that understands systemic racism exists, right? But don't understand their part in it. And whenever decisions are made, they go to policy. It becomes mm -hmm. a, well, we can't make this decision though, even though we know that the only reason this happened is because we were racist. We can't actually do something about it because this happened. Oh, I know a great example, Breonna Taylor, right? Those who are saying, huh, we know that it was wrong they went to the house, et cetera, but her boyfriend did shoot at the police. So, you know, that's policy. If you shoot at the police, the police is supposed to shoot back, right? Those, I think, are the frustrating, people who do that are the frustrating allies that they would say they know, they understand, but then right when they get to the point where they could recognize it and do something about it, they flip. And I don't even think they realize at that point, or perhaps I'm being too generous, that they realize that what's happening now is that racism takes over again. We also changed the measuring post. The measuring post about how do we talk about racism? Because when it becomes Black people, it becomes a double standard. The standards never apply the same. And so those are some other examples, I think, of the way in which we see this happening, but also, one automatic go-to about the way in which racial resentment shows up in the workplace is the absence of black and brown people. Plain and simple. Because if you believe that a black person is lazy, if you believe that a black person is less than, when it comes time for you to evaluate that candidate, everything in your mind psychologically is going to look for disqualifiers, right? And so Andy isn't a good fit. Andy didn't attend the right schools. Andy's, well, his presentation could have been a little better. Oh, he just, you know, it becomes these different ways of trying to justify their lack of presence in a, in a particular institution or place. And when you look at faculty-student relationships, right, it is um, dismissing a white student who doesn't do well as they must have an, um, a disability. And when a black student doesn't do well, say, I don't think they should be here. I really don't think their school prepared them for the DePaul experience. It is taking a paper, and this actually has happened before, taking a paper that a student writes and says, I think they must have bought this paper because they couldn't possibly write this well when they're a black student. I just, I just want to see if I can recap some things just to sort of see if I'm, I'm understanding some things correctly. So there are ways in which people can be bad allies that are sort of like this moral banking thing where they they feel like they've done enough and then if you call them in or call them out 
they get angrily defensive and that that's harmful and counterproductive. They can be silent and not willing to stick their neck out. They, but there's, there's more insidious stuff too, where they, they could be harboring sort of pseudoscientific or false narratives about merit, which tend to conveniently only get applied to people of a particular color, black. I, I do want to sort of talk through those things because there's another phenomena in, in, in ethics that we call motivated reasoning. We, we call it rationalizing. I just want to see if maybe that's what's going on in some of these examples you gave. So motivated reasoning is like when someone's like, they, they reason in a way that is convenient for them. That, so when we ever talk about people rationalizing their behavior, system justification theory, is that, that, is, the, is that motivated reasoning, but applied to systems as a whole rather than my individual behavior probably? So it's this idea that people that we justify anything and system justification theory is the way we understand that, right? So for example, I was going home, my oil light came in on my Yukon and I stopped at a GM dealer and I, they was working on it and I saw another vehicle that I wanted. And I was like, oh, the light is on this truck. Maybe I need to get a new truck. And that was a crazy justification for getting a new car. The very same thing shows up in how we have attitudes, right? The way in which we begin to place blame on individuals. And so when people, for example, people who are racist typically justify that racism by ignoring the fact that there are systems in place that allow certain people to get ahead and certain ones not. And so in this regard, people who are racially resentful look for everything except for what the elephant is to justify their beliefs about whatever. So when we say, uh, you know, people are really afraid to call people racist. Why? I don't know. When there's a clear definition, you either fit it or you don't. And so we, we, oh, well, it's not really about race. It's probably about the idea that they're just not working hard. But I make all of that to say, I think that what you're referring to is classic system justification theory, the notion that people attempt to justify their behavior and rationalize their racist behavior. But we're also, you know, thinking about racism, it becomes irrational in certain elements to try and explain how do you get to certain conclusions about certain elements. I'm, I'm still stuck on this uh, traps that I think allies could fall into. Uh, and in this case, I am actually thinking about white allies because I, I think there's like a kind of, there's like an uber privileged position. And so this is, I think something comes up. This is something that's going to come up for a white person, I think, uh, more often. But you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's a kind of moral dilemma that is when uh, people from an oppressed group disagree morally, about what the right thing to do is, and or different oppressed groups might disagree morally. I'm just sort of curious. So I'll, I'll give an example. There's a debate about Latinx. You, you have members of the trans community, like gendered language, it's, you know, it, it's harmful to us. We want to move away from gendered language. But then you have members of the, and here I am as a white person, now I don't know which word. Do I use Latinx or do I use Latina or Latino? Because they'll say, you white person are just butchering our language, right? And so you get this, you get into this thing where it's like, I am going to do something harmful to uh, an oppressed group, no matter which way I go. And I imagine that leads to white people shutting down. And so I, I'm, I'm curious if you've encountered examples of this, or if you have thoughts about what to do with 
moral disagreement and it doesn't ha this now doesn't have to be a white person what do you do when there's moral disagreement among communities you know you really are trying to understand what's happening and you're not using your privilege to just enter and tell them what they should be using i think that's where the problem is when people who are part of the privileged community think that it's their right to tell people who aren't, who are, are, who are marginalized, what they should and shouldn't be doing. You know, Colin Kaepernick shouldn't be on his knee because that's not the right way to protest. There are tons of other ways. And even dare I say, I know people will be mad I say this, people shouldn't be burning down buildings in, in Louisville or anywhere else because that's not the right way to protest. Who are you to tell them what is the right way to protest when they've been fighting for these rights for centuries? Maybe if you cared about the lives that have been lost and the oppression of the people as much as you care about those buildings that are being burned down and the violence is happening, maybe we wouldn't be in this place. So again, if you, if you have this clear, I don't quite understand, I'll do the best I can. And when you make that known, you, got, you can't be afraid to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Can't be afraid because that gets you in trouble every time. And, and my, my personal philosophy is know your ministry and stay in where, what, what you consider to be your ministry is. I am a race scholar. That is my expertise. I stay in there and I keep my mouth shut on a number of other things because there are there's still learning to take place, right? Learning about concepts, new terms. But at the same time, I think most sane people are willing to have an understanding if they see you as a true ally. And one of the things white people are, are so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And oftentimes the, this happens in discussions about race. They shed, most people will, won't say anything because they don't want to come across as racist. They don't want to say anything as offensive. And so I think most allies have got to understand that you have to understand when to step up and when to step back. And also when to ask sincere questions. And I understand people say, well, I don't want to ask questions because I don't want people to think I'm ignorant. I don't want to get people, go off and people telling me to go do my homework, but be sure you've done your due diligence. Uh, yeah. we, we, you know, before asking a person, a black person or a person of color, how should I do X? Unless it's someone you have a relationship with, you know, like that. And so I think that you're absolutely correct. There is this, this, this moral dilemma of how, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to piss off a certain group? And it's, it, we have got to realize, open and honestly, that even the most well-intended white person can do harm. And it's okay because you've been socialized so bad into an environment of, of anti-Blackness. But the question is, are you going to acknowledge that? And that's where you see the real work when people say, you know what? This is what I said, and I didn't quite understand the context of this. But thanks for calling me out. I'm going to reflect and think on that and do better. For people to think you can be born, raised, educated, etc., in a racist environment, and then not be racist without doing anything extra to fight racism, that's just arrogant. I expect every single white person I meet to be racist, every single person that's not black to be racist, unless they show me or tell me otherwise. Now, I, when I say the word racist, right, I don't think of it like most people think of it. When you call a white person a racist, it's almost like you would be better off calling them a murderer. Because they're like, oh, no, no, you know. But you have to fight against racism in order to not be racist. 
everything you've taught you've been taught from the moment you came out of the womb is that mm. black is less than including black people everything black yes. people have been taught from they when they came out of the womb is that they are less than so they too have to step outside of what they have been taught what they know and so again assume i assume that everyone is racist but that doesn't mean that i cut you off that doesn't mean um you can't redeem yourself it just means that I assume everybody has some work to do. Now, how much work they have to do differs, right? Someone may have to do a heck of a lot of reading and somebody might be almost there. Somebody might be there that they're already anti-racist. This sounds very horrible, but I also think it's a harsh reality is it's the assumption that people want to be anti-racist. And I'm not so sure we exist in a society where the aspiration is to become anti-racist, right? I think the aspiration is to maintain the status quo. I think the aspiration is to continue to center whiteness, both in our education practices, both in our everyday lives. And so it becomes the idea where everybody agree that everyone should be equal, but we're not really committed to engaging in the hard work and the change necessary. We say we are, but we're not really interested in defunding the police. We're not really interested in fundamentally having the, the overhaul to address the question of race. Because again, here we are dealing with this question of race. We created a racial issue and then we create equal protection in the constitution, which says that you can't have race conscious policies. So how do you eradicate a racial issue with a race conscious policy? And I just don't think that in the mind of most people, at least Americans, that the aspiration is to truly be anti-racist. I just wanted to add on to that, that I think this whole idea of merit also gets in the way, right? People are married to the idea that merit is what determines where we are. It determines our lot in life. But the reality is that merit hasn't. And if you understand and recognize that merit isn't the reason you got to where you are. You got there because a racist society helped put you there and gave your family stuff that they didn't deserve. It cuts at the core of who we think we are. It cuts at the core of my belief that my grandparents were so great and they walked across the country to settle in this place and call it home and they fought all these people and they did all this great stuff and they became millionaires because of all this hard work. It cuts at the core of who you are. Who are you now? Who are you now if you're told that your ancestors actually weren't those great people who you think they were? And in fact, they were the opposite of that. So that merit isn't anything. So that's one of the reasons why I think that people refuse to want to even do anti-racism because then mm -hmm. merit goes out of the window. And once merit goes out of the window, you have to look at yourself in the mirror for what you and your family, your ancestors really are. And that might mm -hmm. not be pleasing. And we've created the narrative too, that when we think about, like even one of the questions that measures racial resentment says Italians, Jews, and everybody else work their way up. Why can't blacks do the same? Well, I can tell you why we can't do the same because after World War II, there was something called the GI Bill that the Southern states blocked and would only allow the implementation of as if states could control the resources and they disproportionately gave them to white families. They disproportionately employed education benefits to white families. They disproportionately employed housing loans at low interest rates. And Ira Katz Nelson in When Affirmative Action Was White 
actually documents this, that when we ride into certain communities and see these elaborate mansions, this is the legacy of affirmative action before we even introduced the term affirmative action in America that came at the backs of the government. But the story we tell is that great-grandfather Beauregard fought in the war. He came back and started this business, employed families, and we built a multi-million dollar corporation. And wow, here we are. We don't talk about the fact that that was benefited as a result of welfare government policy that was mm-hmm. given to white people. And what Ira Katz Nelson documents in, in, in When Affirmative Action Was White was that this was the perfect time for America to really establish a strong black middle class and eradicate the poverty. But when we disproportionately awarded the resources, we worsened the gap. And so homes built in the 1940s were then transferred to and willed to other generations. And that generational wealth has expanded over the decades, further widening the gap. It's the reason why a middle-class income in my house is different from middle-class income in my colleagues' house. So what are you all working on now? Do you have any books or research coming out soon? Well, we're actually working on a book now on racial resentment, and it'll bring up some of these issues in the book in particular, what it looks like in the Black community, how racial resentment has transformed social media, and various other things as well. So look forward to the book. We're still working on the title, but look forward to that book uh, for it to come out in next year, about this time. And we also have a piece coming out in the National Review of Black Politics entitled, I Can't Breathe, Assessing the Role of Racial Resentment in Feelings Towards Black Lives Matter Movement. So uh, essentially understanding there was this idea that white people was ready to really overhaul systemic racism with George Floyd. And so we are interested in whether or not attitudes toward Black Lives Matter movement among whites is predicted by racial resentment. And what we essentially find is that those who have negative attitudes about the Black Lives Matter movement typically are highly racially resentful. So we're looking forward to that hitting the press. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. Joining us today was Professor Clarissa Peterson and Professor Emmett Riley. Thank you both for joining us. Thank Thank you. you It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what Jess and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.